to do as we come to uh, Titus chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15, even as you're opening your Bibles or, or finding that in the uh, bulletin. I do want to remind us that even in creation, way back in Genesis 1 and 2, and then moving through the rest of the Bible, there is a sense that creation and the world and people, they are moving forward. They're going somewhere. I mean, even when God finishes his creation the sixth day and he, he, on the seventh day he rests, God's not finished with the world. The idea there is because Adam and Eve are there to continue on with God's work as, as, as God's vice regents. God's not absent. He's at work through and with, even in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, and the rest of the people, the rest of the stories that are found in the Bible. There's a movement in God's word. It's a movement out into the world in time. And, and that is also true of our individual personal lives, our relationships. Individuals will go through stages of life. They go to school, they go to work, they develop relationships, or even marriage and family. There, there are stages of development. The stage before children, when a young couple just gets married. The stage if the Lord blesses in this way with younger children, then with older children, and even as they mature and they move out into the world with their own lives, there are later stages in our lives. We grow, we change, we develop, hopefully for the better. And so often, and I've had several conversations even this week with people, that we, we focus on static entities, kind of like just a, a, an old Polaroid picture where that's what life is, when in actuality, it's more like a video. And we don't know what the future holds, but we are all moving somewhere, growing in some way, forgetting sometimes that, that we're always changing. There's purpose, and there's meaning to everything that we're going through, even this day, whether it be good, whether it be bad, there's purpose and there's meaning. It's not only these experiences, but these experiences in and over time where we have the opportunity to grow into a fuller form of what it means to be human. And for the Christian this morning, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is all happening within God's realm of special grace. Because Jesus Christ has come. This realm of grace that we live in, that hopefully you're, you're tasting some of even this morning in the worship service. It should be the most powerful influence on our lives. The potential is there is to make us into people who are full, who are flourishing, who are exciting, even though the world around us can sometimes be bad, even though the things that happen to us can sometimes be bad. Living in light of God's grace is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ changes everything. This morning, as we look at this text, this, these few verses, I'm going, to try to, I'm, I'm going to try to share with you this, that God's grace in the past has 
the potential to make us new, to save us. And God's grace in the present, it has power to change us. And then lastly, God's grace is our hope in the future. It's power to live this life knowing that something better is to come. So let's read. Let's read Titus 2. I'm going to read verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you especially for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was born a man, that he died on a cross, he saved us from our sins, and we thank you that we are not left alone. We thank you that he will return and make all things right. We look to this even now. In Christ's name, amen. So God's grace saves us, and I know this may sound somewhat uh, elementary to some of you. I don't think it is. God's grace saves us, God God's grace changes us, and God's grace is holding us. God's grace in Christ saves us. We do need to be aware that God's grace has always been on display to the world. When he created the world, when he created people, God's grace was on display. Even when uh, Adam and Eve disobeyed God, his grace was on display as he relentlessly pursued them. God's grace was on display in the lives of Abraham and his family, Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David. Every page of this Bible, God's grace is being displayed. But... God's grace has been most powerfully put on display uniquely in his saving work with the intervention of Jesus Christ. God in Christ intervening, he had the whole of humanity in view. But as Paul makes clear in many places, only those who believe can experience those saving benefits Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. This is universal provision, not universalism. It is everybody has the opportunity to see God's grace being displayed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. When you look to him by faith, when you trust him for your salvation, that's when we enter into a fuller understanding of who God is. A fuller understanding of God's goodness and God's love and God's mercy and even God's power. It's seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ as he's born a man. As he lived on this earth without sin. As he died in our place on the cross. As he was raised from the grave. That is God's grace. Verse 14, this work of Jesus is explained. 
how salvation is brought to us. It simply says, verse 14, Christ gave himself for us. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The work of Christ bringing salvation begins with Jesus Christ giving of himself. He is the gift of God's grace. If you want something concrete to understand what God's grace is all about, you look to the person of Jesus Christ. You look to the the work of Jesus Christ to redeem us. It means it came at a price. Redemption here is the language of sacrifice and substitution. Jesus Christ died for sin. He was obedient unto death. And the blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. We are forgiven. Sometimes we don't take that seriously enough because we don't think we're as bad as we are. But when you look down deep into your hearts, forgiveness is a great gift of God's grace. Also, redeemed from all lawlessness, free from all the deeds done against or in opposition to God's law. Not only that, but to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We've been set apart. We've been made new. We are unique. And that's why we're zealous for good works. God's grace is the basis for everything Paul writes, even as Matt described before he read Psalm 26. Everything that Paul writes, everything found in Titus and all his letters, God's grace is the basis for everything. If you go back to chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, why should elders be the way they are? It's because of God's grace. In chapter 2, 1 through 10, last week, how do older men and younger men and older women and younger women, even servants, how are they to live in the world? It's all because of God's grace. Next week, when Matt preaches chapter 3, it's all based on God's grace. We're new creatures in Christ. God has saved us. We've entered into a new reality, a new understanding of God's grace, more complete understanding of who this God is and how he loves us. We've been, been saved from the guilt and power of sin, and death no longer has the last word. God's grace in Christ is the power of salvation because Jesus Christ has come to save sinners like me and you. Salvation. God not only saves us, God's grace changes us. And, and we do need to be aware. People, people without God are aware of their need for good works. I, I, I meet very few people that don't, don't seek to try to do good things. They imagine, though, that they can achieve them through their own power, some kind of legalistic, regimented formula. But we know, at least we should know, that it's much harder than that. Our problem lies much deeper. The secret of our behavior is not on the surface. Rather, there are underlying drives and demands of the heart that make us do what we do. Which is why Paul here says the grace of God appearing, Jesus Christ, it not only has power to save, it has power to sanctify us. It has power to change us. Look at this, uh, verse 12. The grace of God has appeared not only bringing salvation, but training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. 
The first coming of Jesus Christ is ushered in the glorious age to come, but we're still living in the midst of the present evil age. So this present age is a combination of both. And Paul and Titus are, are very aware that even though Christians come under the saving power of Jesus Christ, even though they have been changed and they have been saved, we're still surrounded by the world. Old habits in our heart lurk within us and our friends. And we know that even though we've been saved, we can't muster enough of our own energy to change. It still has to come from God's grace in Christ Jesus. We can try to do certain things, but we can't change our hearts. God's plan is not simply to produce some transactions on paper, but he's working to achieve changes in our lives in the here and now. Verse 12, God's grace trains us to, to first renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and desires. Worldly here, meaning those things that are opposed to God. They're, they're not bad desires. They are just disordered desires. In fact, I do want to draw this out. Ungodliness is revealed by worldly desires. For instance, there's a worldly desire for love. We see it in the world around us. Love is not a bad thing. Love is a good thing. God is love. It is true. But the worldly desire for love emphasizes the self and our own feelings. It's focused inward. It's all about, oh, I love that person because they make me feel so good. Godly desire for love seeks the well-being of other people, self-sacrificing. This love gives. It doesn't simply receive. It is active. It's work to love people. There's a worldly idea and understanding of sex. Simply seeks what it can get whenever it is wanted for pleasure separated from our humanity, from our person. It's a biblical view of sex where body and soul are integrated that takes into account the potential for new life. It takes into account commitment and intimacy. And in the Bible, it's beautiful, intimate, and good. Ungodliness is revealed by worldly desires. It's a worldly view of money. It's focused on power, pride, influence, and greed. There's a godly view of money that serves, that shares, and gives. The grace of God has appeared, helping us to understand those desires that we have, how they can be godly versus how they can be worldly. It's not something to come. It's in the present age. In that age between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ, God doesn't simply come to take care of our past or, or simply prepare us for the future. It equips us for life in the here and now. God's grace in Christ teaches us something positive, self-controlled. It's related to our own individual lives, how we view ourselves. Our hearts are controlled or even compelled by the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Upright and righteous seem to point to how we relate to other people. We seek to relate to others in a righteous way, in an upright way, because that's how God has dealt with us. And godly, it seems to point to the relationship with God. We've been bought at a price. We now live with him and for him. God's grace is what teaches us 
to renounce ungodliness. God's grace teaches us self-control, upright, and godly. You know, Paul here to Titus, he does acknowledge the fact, the, the, the difficult arena in which Christians must live. But God's grace is overwhelming in this present age. It never stops working. It is continuous, which leads to our last point here. It's verse 13. I think it also ties everything together. We've talked about God's grace appearing in the, in the coming of Jesus Christ where we have been saved. We talk about God's grace in the person of Christ and in his work that, that teaches us and helps us become the people that we want to be. But lastly, God's grace in Christ, verse 13, even as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, waiting here is not passive. Waiting here is living in light of what God has done with his first coming. It's working and living in the present age. It's being trained. The one who's been saved by Christ, that he or she can be changed. And these things all make sense because the Christian has one hope. The one who has met Christ and put his trust in Christ. The one who is seeking to be like Christ. He does all that or she does all that because the Christian has one hope. And that is the return of Jesus Christ where he will make all things right. And let me say it like this. We're not called to, to simply be good for the sake of goodness. That's not an end in itself. The end of our lives is not just we want to be good people. We're not simply saved so that we can enjoy the benefits of our salvation even though there are many benefits we are being formed and matured and grown as Christians in preparation for glory with Jesus Christ. And it's God's grace in Jesus Christ in the here and now who should be forming us. We're not just passing time. We're certainly not called to simply live for our own goals. We are called to live in anticipation of the second coming of Christ. And this passage is moving that way. That's why this sermon is moving that way. Because your life is moving in a certain direction. And the question that I want to end with as we conclude, what are you waiting for? Or another way to say it is, what are you living for? What is your hope? Because from a practical application standpoint, this is what directs your lives. What are you living for? Tied to the previous point, the desire and the expectation of our hearts are always wedded to how we live. Do you understand that? Our heart's desires are always linked integrally with how we live. So can you say with Paul this morning, if you're a Christian, can you say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain? Can you say that and really mean it? Because this is where the rubber meets the road. In the present time, in your experiences, on this earth, in the here and now, what is your blessed hope? See, if you're, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, and I, and I don't know all of you, okay, but you can ask this question, what are you living for? What are you hoping for? You can evaluate what it is, and then you can have a follow-up question, and you can say, will it last forever? Will it be eternal? Because if you're living for yourself, if you're living for a person, if you're living for um, uh, money, if you're living for a job, if you're living for anything other than the person and work of Jesus Christ, it will not last. And... and and I can only think of two things in that situation. If, if you just think that this world and this life is all you have, 
then I do understand why you would just live for yourself. It makes perfect sense. Because all you got is this life. And the other thing that, that I think in that is my heart breaks. Because this life is full of trouble. Even with all the good things, this life is hard. And it will end. So if you're an unbeliever, you can evaluate what it is you're living for. If you're a believer here this morning, the question is this. What are you hoping and waiting for more than the glory of Jesus Christ? What are you hoping for and living for more than being with him in the new heavens and the new earth? Because I do have to say this. There, there are a lot of good things in this life. There are. There's good and there's bad, and those good things are really good, but they will only be experienced in the fullest sense, lived in the realm of God's grace, which means lived in light of the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. But even then, as we live today, those good things in this world will not ultimately matter or less outside the realm of God's grace in Christ Jesus. Let me, let me say it like this. Here's another way. First way, can you really say? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Secondly, what is it that stops you from wanting? This is really important. I, I don't care how old you are this morning. What is it that stops you from wanting Jesus Christ to come back right now? I, I only think there's one good answer. Because I, you know, I think most of my job is just talking to people and I, I ask that question to people and I, I hear a variation of one of these things. I want to see my kids grow up. I, that's good. I, I want you to see your kids grow up. Uh, I want to get married. That's good. Uh, I want to see my grandkids. I, I just recently, in the last few years, became a grandfather and it, it is awesome. It is much better than I ever could have imagined. I want to visit Paris. See, those things, none of those things, hear me now, none of those things are bad in themselves, but alone, they are not good answers. Because if your kids grow up and they don't know Jesus Christ, then this is all you have. Marriage can be great, it can also be hard, but it's certain that however good our relationships are now, nothing will compare to what they will be like when Christ returns. And I had to put this one in here. I think I've said this before, but I will probably say it again, and I'm going to say it now. Paris will be fun. You see, I put Paris in here because before I went off to seminary, my young daughter, she, I don't remember exactly how old she was, but she was, she was little. And we were talking about, Daddy, I want you to take me to Paris. And I said, Mary Catherine, I, I'll do everything I can to take you to Paris. And then we decided to go to seminary. And as I was talking to my family, my wife, and my children, I was making sure that they really knew what they were getting into, and they would tell you now they didn't. But I was doing my best to make sure that this was the right thing to do. And I, I sat down with my daughter, <clears throat> and I said, Mary Catherine, I think this means we won't be going to Paris. And my daughter with those, those big old eyes, she said, that's all right, Daddy. We'll go to Paris when Jesus comes back. That's the way we need to look at our lives. 
The only good answer for not wanting Christ to come back now is if your children and your family and your friends don't know Christ and you want them to know Christ more than anything else. And if that is true, then you are going to be busy doing whatever you can so that those friends and family, they will be ready when Jesus Christ comes back. That's why Paul says renounce ungodliness. That's why he says live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. This is the reason why he's saying all these things. Because how you live today impacts not only who you are, but it sends the message that Jesus Christ has come, he is at work, and he will come again because we are all going somewhere. That's why it matters who we are and what we're doing. It's not so that people think well of us. It's not so that we can be happier. It's not so that we get anything that we want. It's so that the word of God would be proclaimed that Jesus Christ has come. He's changed the world and he's going to come back again and everything's going to be made new and we need to be ready. You know, I think Matt may, I hope I don't ruin this, but I think Matt will be touching on this next week a little bit. If he doesn't, this is what you get because it's still true. Evangelism in the Bible, there's no program. It's proclaiming the gospel and living like it so that you are a testament to God's grace. That's why Paul concludes in Titus, declare these things. He says to Titus, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with authority because it's true, it's eternal, it's forever. The proclamation that Jesus Christ saves that he is at work and that he will come again. These things are to be communicated and lived in continually. And it is the realm of God's grace because Jesus Christ has come and he will come again. And that is our hope. Christ is our hope. And I know as I conclude, look, I'm a pastor and I mess it up every day of every week. I forget this. That's why we come back every Lord's Day to remember what God's grace is like so that over the course of time, however many years you have, whether you're, hey, my wife told me I'm 58 and I won't tell you that often. She says I'm still changing. I want your wives and your husbands and your friends to realize that God is at work in your life and there's nobody too old to continue to to proclaim the gospel and to live it out and for people to see Jesus Christ is alive. That's what Redeemer is all about. That's why we come. And Matt said it in his prayer. We're here for the sake of the world. We're here for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we're here that that God's name would be proclaimed. It matters how you live because Jesus Christ has come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, we thank you for the first. We thank you that Jesus Christ was born a man. We thank you that he walked this earth and lived this life that that we can identify with. We can understand all except for the fact that he never sinned. This is our Savior, and this sinless, perfect man who is both both human and God. He died on a cross for us. If there's anyone here that does not know Jesus Christ, I pray that they would look to him today. And for those of us who do, would we be reminded of the beautiful, the powerful, the lovely 
picture it is to live in this realm of grace where we know that one day you will come back and we will be with you forever. In Christ's name, amen. Those helping with communion, would you please come forward?